to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The Union Army's war to unify the nation lasted through four years of battle against the armed forces of the Confederacy. Those were also years of internal conflict within the Northern armies and within the soldiers themselves as they struggled to promote and live up to differing ideals of manhood. What did being a man mean in the North in the 1860s? We'll ask Professor Lorian Foote, author of The Gentleman in the Roughs, Violence, Honor, and Manhood in the Union Army, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you as is usually the case from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the rain-soaked University of North Carolina system, but not speaking for the system or local weather predictors or anybody else just for myself, and our guest will do the same as always on Civil War Talk Radio. It has been raining for about the last 72 hours here off and on in Greenville, and we're we're still okay. No flooding, as far as I can tell. I hope wherever you are, things are drier than this. But we are hanging in there. Uh, students are coming to class soaking wet. I uh, saw one student had just given up and was wearing nothing but a bathing suit walking across campus today and a backpack. Uh, I thought, you know, maybe that's the only way to handle it. But it, it has been wet here. Well, since last week, I had the uh, pleasure of the annual meeting, attending the annual meeting of the Board of Advisors of the Lincoln Studies Center at Knox College in Illinois. That is where Rodney Davis and Doug Wilson have been doing outstanding work for the last uh, almost two decades now, collecting and publishing Lincoln-related sources. Herndon's Informants is a book that anybody who writes about 
uh, Abraham Lincoln's early life has used many times. They're currently working on what looks like it will be the final product of the the, the research arc they've been on, uh, the book on Herndon's lectures that he gave after his uh, after Lincoln's life when Hern, William Herndon, his law partner, went around talking about what he knew of Lincoln. And it was just a wonderful weekend to see uh, people you've heard on the show, Michael Burlingame, Jenny Weber, uh, Matt Pinsker, James Oakes, uh, John Sellers. Uh, we all had a, a very interesting time talking about the Lincoln world today. We also interesting is we went took a coffee break at the student coffee shop at one point and all the creamers were flavored everything was vanilla or caramel or something we had to ask for ordinary cream or milk for one's coffee and just think the youth of today are clearly degenerate in this fashion and I, I cannot exclude my own daughters who put that weird stuff in their coffee too well it was a good weekend uh, it meant i did not get to go to the history department retreat here on campus this was a new thing our new chair my successor has instituted and everybody who went said it was actually quite good i think the bar of expectations was low but the outcome was good and uh, people were pleasantly surprised so maybe i'll get to do that next year well next week on civil war talk radio you'll want to be here uh, i'll be talking with kathy wright curator of the American Civil War Museum in Richmond, formerly the Museum of the Confederacy. Then on October 5th, Mark Dunkelman, who's been on the show several times, will be back with his new work, Patrick Henry Jones, Irish American, Civil War General, and Gilded Age politician. On October 12th, Deborah Redden Van Tal, author of The Confederate Press and the Crucible of the American Civil War. And then some more uh, shows lined up give you, a, they're, they're lined up through the end of the year, I'll give you just a few more. James Hofstadt has a book on uh, General Martin Davis Hardin, Lincoln's Bold Lion. On the 26th of October, David Mowry, Morgan's Great Raid, the remarkable expedition from Kentucky to Ohio. That was a listener's suggestion, and your suggestions are always welcome. And on November 2nd, we rub shoulders with the Hollywood elite, Victoria Bynum, comes back to the show uh, to talk about uh, her most recent book, The Long Shadow of the Civil War, Southern Descent and Its Legacies. But I'm also, of course, going to ask her about Free State of Jones, the movie made based on her previous book, which we discussed a few years ago here on Civil War Talk Radio. So lots to listen to, lots to read. I get complaints regularly from listeners who say it is costing them money to buy the books that they hear about on the show. All I can say is keep doing that. Go to www.impedimentsofwar.org and you can find there links to the books we're talking about. Click on those. It'll go right to Amazon and get a penny or two of a pass-through when you do that. And consider donating to the Civil War Talk Radio Book and Libation and Kitchen Remodeling Fund. Uh, it is not tax-deductible, but it is uh, a worthy cause. I hope you would consider a worthy cause. I would put out the idea, consider a recurring donation as a possibility. If it seems like paying 20 or $30 for free content just doesn't feel right, uh, a number of listeners have set up where they, they send uh, $5 or even less on a monthly basis. PayPal can set that up for you. It's easy to do. And you get four hours of content free. You'd get them anyway, but 
your conscience is soothed, you've saved the cost of a fast food lunch, uh, and you've made a non-tax deductible contribution. Uh, the Civil War book fund is completely non-transparent. You have no idea what I'm spending the money on. I want to be clear, it's not a uh, an actual 501c3. In the past, I have used funds to go to the Civil War Historians uh, Society meeting or bought journal subscriptions, but who knows what I would do with your money. Uh, the, the excitement builds, makes it all the more tempting to donate. Well, enough of that. Let's get to tonight's guest. Uh, we're talking tonight about the question of manhood in the Union Army. We'll talk about other questions as well. But that's the topic of a book by Professor Lorian Foote at uh, Texas A&M University. Uh, Dr. Foote, are you there? I am here. Welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm just delighted to be here. Well, delighted to have you. Uh, you and I got to meet very briefly in Chattanooga at the uh, the, the Society of Civil War Historians meeting, and I had been for the longest time trying to uh, get to read your book and get you on the show, and I'm delighted that that worked out. Uh, before any other question, I have to ask if uh, about your name, if you are related to Adm- Admiral Foote uh, of Civil War fame. I am related to Admiral Foote. In, in what way? He is some kind of distant cousin. I'm not aware of the exact degree of relation, but one of my relatives had traced out our genealogy, and he's on there. Ah, excellent. I, now, when most people ask about your name, they probably ask you about, is that a Lord of the Rings name? Uh, about your first <laughs> name, but uh, uh, we'll leave that for the for other listeners to, to figure out. Um, so... How did you get interested in the subject of the Civil War, 19th century history generally? Give us a little background how you got into this field. Well, when I was working on my doctorate at the University of Oklahoma, I'd originally intended to do research in colonial revolutionary American history. And as I was reading the literature on American history to study for my comprehensive exams, I found that I just was the most drawn to the literature on the Civil War, that I found the the story so compelling that I thought the significance of what was at stake in American history was so compelling. So that really, it was that process of reading scholarship on the Civil War that drew me to that field. And I ended up writing my dissertation um, as a biography of Francis George Shaw, who for Civil War bus, you know him as Robert Gould Shaw's father, the Colonel of the 54th Massachusetts. And I used his life as a window to look at the evolution of reform movements in the 19th century and the pivotal role of the Civil War in the evolution of how Americans conceived of reforming their society. Oh, that One of the bees in my bonnet I have sometimes when people talk about professional history is uh, when, when social historians talk about, you know, I'm not interested in the Civil War, I'm interested in real people. Uh, <laughs> uh, nothing interested the real people of that time more than the war era. Uh, it, it was a pivot for reform and for, uh, uh, obviously, the civil rights and slavery, the women's movement, it, it, it shaped everything. Um, when you, in your book, you say that when you started to write this book, your initial thought was to write about discipline in the Union Army, but you got sidetracked. Yeah, so what happens? What happened was when I was researching my dissertation and I was reading the letters 
of all of these New England reformers and a lot of the young men from these uh, interrelated kinship network families, a lot of these young men went to war as officers. And so I was reading the letters and diaries of these young officers, and I noticed that almost all of them had had an incident where they shot one of the men in their regiments. And I just found that very interesting that that seemed to be a pattern (laughs) with all of them. And as I started, you know, just asking myself, why would all of these men, all of these officers have an incident like that in their record? I I started trying to read more about discipline and military justice, and I, I really felt there was a need for an overarching study of that subject. There wasn't really a single book that that treated that subject. And so I developed a database where I created a statistical sample of Union regiments and I marched off to the National Archives to start reading regimental order books and court-martial records with, with the idea of writing a book on military justice and discipline. And when I started reading these court cases, I got distracted by very interesting questions because, so for example, I would be reading a trial of an officer who was involved in a shooting incident and he would be charged with conduct and becoming an officer and a gentleman and one of the one of the specifications of the charge would be that he you know shot a fellow officer and then a, another specification would be that he used the phrase son of a bitch and in this trial where there there's a shooting involved i mean they would spend over half the trial taking testimony on whether the officer used this phrase. And I I just found myself fascinated. You know, why do they care so much whether he used this language? And, um, you know, a lot of the testimony was about whether that was the kind of language that any gentleman would ever use under any circumstance. And so when I started seeing that kind of evidence in the trials, I realized that um, my book wasn't going to be about justice. It it was also going to be about what people meant by a gentleman and how their concepts of manhood affected military service. That that evolution of the topic in process is one of the things that uh, I always tell students, if you're changing your topic while you're going, it means you're doing something right because you're interested. <laughs> right. You found something good. You're following the evidence. Uh, Stephen Ramold came out with a book on discipline in the Union Army. Did that come out while you were doing this? No, in fact, I was, it was, well, now I can't remember if his came out a few months before mine or if mine came out a few months before his, but I remember when his came out and and I wrote a review on it. As I was reading the book for the review, I sat there thinking, I'm so glad that I changed because someone else was already doing this and he did a great job. It's a very comprehensive book. So, you know, I was really happy that I went in another direction. Nothing is is worse than, than, uh, you know, you finish the book and it comes out just as as someone else's book comes out on the same topic. That so exactly. <laughs> well, as readers, we're fortunate that we now have two very interesting books on different topics, uh, but related. One of the things you talk about in going to the National Archives is looking at court-martial records. And every listener to the show is familiar with the general court-martial. You you bring a few officers together and uh, uh, try someone. But you found that there was also a a lower level, a regimental court-martial that handled a lot of things. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so there were regimental court-martials where uh, a regiment would appoint three officers to hear low-level discipline cases such as um, just conduct prejudicial to good order and military discipline or... um, 
you know, just minor infractions. And the court would would hear the cases. And usually in the regimental order books, they would they would not give the content of what was said at the trial. They would just, you know, name the officers who were on the court and then give the enlisted men who appeared before the court and the charge and then what the verdict was and then what the punishment was, which I found in most cases was some sort of fine, even though there were times when there were physical punishments that were inflicted. So these, so, so a lot of discipline happened uh, you know, below the radar of what we typically think when we look, look at civil war. Trials. Yes, I think I think a lot of a lot of the discipline was just summer, summary punishment on the spot by an officer. That's the most common form of discipline in the Union Army. And then for a variety of reasons, some cases would reach a regimental court martial or then a general court martial. But most of the time, if an enlisted man um, violated an article of war or if he disobeyed an officer, the officer is just going to punish him on the spot. Well, you mentioned the Articles of War, and the 83rd Article of War uh, talks about conduct unbecoming an officer and a gentleman. And since that is really the central uh, argument of the book, finding out what is a gentleman, what is uh, in the North during the Civil War, what we'll do is take a short break, ponder that question, come back in a very short time, talk more with our guest tonight, Lorian Foote, author of The Gentleman and the Roughs, Manhood, Honor, and Violence in the Union Army. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. 
And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Lorian Foote, author of The Gentleman and the Roughs, Manhood, Honor, and Violence in the Union Army. We talked a little bit about where to find evidence on this in the records of general court-martials and regimental court-martials, and the uh, intriguing fact that as often as not the gentlemanly behavior of an officer would be questioned as much as his disciplinary action. So that brings us to the central question, what makes someone a gentleman in 19th century, mid-19th century uh, northern United States? What, what are some of the elements? What, what did you find? Well, I found that there was actually conflict over what it meant to be a gentleman. And, and there were points of conflict that I particularly saw. One issue was moral character. Some men believed that you needed to have um, good moral character in order to claim to be a gentleman. You didn't drink, you didn't curse, you were um, sexually faithful to your wife, um, you waited until marriage to have sex, you um, were honest and had integrity. But um, some men actually did not think that, that um, drinking or using um, foul language was a mark of bad moral character. In fact, many men believed that your ability to, to drink and um, use profane language kind of was what marked you as a man. So there was a lot of conflict over that. Another issue that I saw was a conflict over honor. And... I have to define honor because people tend to misunderstand what the word means as it was used in 19th century America. Honor meant that your self-worth only came when your reputation was recognized by others. Um, so you had to have um, honor given to you by other people in order to have honor. And so that's why an insult is a public shaming that demands that you vindicate yourself in the eyes of your peers. So many men in the North, their self-worth was based on their reputation amongst their peers. Um, for other men, they felt that your self-worth just came from your own internal knowledge of who you were and that you had moral character and virtue and what other people thought of you didn't matter. And so there was really a difference in how they viewed honor. There was also conflict over whether gentility was necessary to be a gentleman. So some men believed that, that gentlemen were genteel, that they acquired certain refinement and etiquette that they were able to use, whereas other men felt that this was completely worthless in how you measure um, a man. And then finally, physical prowess. Some men really valued physical toughness, your ability to fight, inflict pain on others. Other men even viewed this as a sign that you're not a man, that you would turn to violence, and, and they, they viewed violence with suspicion. So th those were the areas that I saw the most conflict. Wow, there, there's a, a lot to unpack there. I know. <laughs> let me ask, uh, let me start with honor, because it's an interesting question. Uh, the In most, in, in a lot of historical writing, uh, the Bertram Wyatt Brown comes to mind, Kenneth Greenberg, others. Mm -hmm. uh, historians have written about honor among Southern gentlemen, and, and it's widely recognized that honor was a, a very high, highly regarded value uh, in the antebellum South, and, and we come to expect that. But you found that it, it had not disappeared in the North, that, that there were many Northerners, many Northern men, who regarded honor as, as just as important as their southern uh, contemporaries. That's correct. I think that's one of the most important contribution of the book is that 
looking at these records that allowed men to have a voice who were not literate and who don't have the diaries and the letters that we see from some of the more educated classes in the North, but looking at documents where men are giving their testimony who, who didn't leave those kind of sources, it, it helped me to see this pervasive sense of honor among Northern men that it just looked different than Southern honor. It, it didn't lead to duels, but it did lead to certain type of fights that had their own type of rituals that required men to follow these certain procedures that all the other men recognized that they were defending their honor. So, for example, among Northern men, and I can picture this, you know, in the Civil War, I was able to see it through these records, but I can picture picture this happening in men's hometown, <laughs> you know, um, the incidents just don't get recorded in newspapers or people's comments, but men are having a, a disagreement in front of other men. And then one man is going to say, you're a liar, you're a puppy, you're a coward. Any of those key words is, is an, a drastic assault on the other man's reputation and honor. So he must defend himself immediately it, because peers are watching by saying something like, well, I will fight you with fists or, you know, some other form of weapon. And then there's a ritual fight that these men will have or their friends know the ritual and know how to intervene to defuse the situation in a way that both men can walk away with their honor intact. So so fighting is, is, is one way to vindicate the honor. As you pointed out, it's an external uh, virtue. It's only it's rewarded to you by the community, by people seeing yes. what you're doing. Uh, and then people engage in all these kinds of fights. The The duel, uh, the formal duel, is the the classic version of that. And, of course, Southern uh, soldiers occasionally do this. Did you find examples of that happening uh, among Northern soldiers very often or at all? I did. I did. And that's what really surprised people. And, you know, the embarrassing moment here, because this is my own book, is that I'm afraid I'm not going to remember the exact numbers because, you know, as you and as you know, and I think we'll talk about at the very end of the program, I, I have another book coming out in November. Yes. So for the last six years, I've been so immersed in that research that the details. But I, I think that I found 33 affairs of honor in the court-martial records of the Union Army. And just to put that in perspective... That's pretty much the number that we have in the regular army from the revolution through the Civil War. So I think the fact that we have so many in just those four years, I mean, it reveals the extent to which northern men had lived by honor and then now they're in the army in these massive numbers, that's going to come out. So, I mean, I found cases in the Union Army where men followed the formal dueling ritual of sending notes with a, a challenge and naming seconds. I found an incident where a um, a young man from Massachusetts who was a scion of kind of an industrial, what we think of as a modern family, he initiated an affair of honor. He had been insulted and he actually ritually horsewhipped another officer in the Department of Ohio um, as a way of trying to get that other man to challenge him to a duel. I found cases See, I where there were... Oh, uh, say, the, the horse whipping scene is one of the great ones in the book where the, the <laughs> officer comes in and and the, the room is full of other officers doing their bureaucratic jobs and he, he taps the guy on the shoulder gently with a horse whip and says, you all observe I am horse whipping him. Uh, yes. So his honor has been damaged. He now has to challenge me back. And to people who are not into the honor culture, the other officers are looking, what are you doing? 
But what's great about that incident is there's so many layers to it because in the formal ritual of honor, if you do not believe that someone else is a gentleman who has your same social status, they're not worthy of a challenge to a duel. And so that's why the phrase would be you would chastise them. Right. And it was an accepted way to do that using a horse whip. So the fact that he used that whip, he was also trying to indicate that he did not recognize the other man as being of his same status. Wow. The, um like like Sumner and Brooks in the Senate before the war. Uh, exactly. That you you beat your inferior. You don't challenge him. I was uh, as I was reading this, I was thinking. I'm working on a Lincoln project, and uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln's almost a duel with James Shields in 1842, mm-hmm. when uh, Shields challenges him formally, and they go through all the rituals, and Lincoln who gets to name the conditions, because he's the one who's been challenged, says, we'll fight with cavalry broadswords in a 10-foot square, which to me is making a joke of the whole thing. It would be a ridiculous fight, but other scholars think he was being serious, and they were really going to go at it, uh, had had their seconds not solved it for them. So uh, I guess that will remain un, unsettled for now. Let me ask uh, another question about not dueling as much, but just sheer violence between officers. Uh, you, you describe several scenes where officers shoot one another uh, that are, are – and there's no punishment. Um, a major major Bradley uh, shoots a, a drunk lieutenant colonel, his own superior officer, who curses him and, and accuses him of all kinds of things. And finally, the, the major pulls out his pistol and shoots the lieutenant colonel in front of dozens of onlookers, and there's no punishment. Well, what I found was, to me, these incidents showed that it was widespread among northern men to agree that a real man could not accept a certain level of insult from another man. Repeated attacks, um, repeated attempts to to disparage your character, call you names, any man who let that just go on and on, that's not manly. And what seemed to be key in these incidents for men to vindicate themselves was how the the phrase I use in the book, which was the phrase they used, was 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 the offended person cool. If you lose your temper and give in to your emotions and just lash out, that was not considered as manly as if you have complete control of yourself. This other person is attacking you, calling you names, repeatedly trying to provoke you. And if if a man remained cool as if nothing was happening and then responded with some kind of, uh, you know, either shooting the person or even physically attacking him, the men who were witnessing the incident were very impressed with the man who remained cool and only acted until it was completely unbearable to allow the other man to continue. Uh, and the the most famous incident of that uh, takes place in the Army of the Ohio in mm-hmm. 1862 when uh, Jefferson C. Davis, the Union general, not the Confederate president, uh, shoots uh, uh, Bull Nelson, who is a character who insults everybody he meets. Nelson is, is a, a wild man, not subject to 19th century limitations on language, apparently. And he finally insults the wrong guy in Nelson or in, in Davis who shoots him. It was my favorite part of your book because you cited my work there, but that's, that's <laughs> to the side um, uh, in the Army of the Ohio. But uh, when I wrote about that incident, I found certainly the whole army thought 
uh, Nelson had it coming, and and Davis was allowed to kill a brother officer, and not only not punished, he ends up uh, retaining his rank and commanding a division later. So I guess that's another example of, of keeping one's cool and committing murder. And and it's an example. I mean, your book and your discussion of the rea- of the reaction within the army is part of the evidence that I used. You can only understand this widespread support for what Davis did through the lens of a culture of honor by understanding that it was widespread in the North to accept the demands of honor, which is Nelson committed an unbearable insult. That was a phrase I saw a lot in the soldiers' letters and diaries. It was in newspaper articles about the incident. Um, You know, unbearable, I think, is a key word. If you're not in an honor culture, a verbal insult isn't unbearable. <laughs> but in a culture of honor, it is because it, it strips away your your whole sense of self-worth unless you can publicly vindicate yourself. And the way to do that, the accepted way to do that is through violence. Now, another element of, of related to honor, but also uh, of the gentleman's status, you, you mentioned briefly, uh, gentility, the the correct behavior, being polite, being clean, being abstinent, uh, doing, you know, having deportment, uh, uh, refinement, all these things distinguish a gentleman from from someone who isn't. And I found it very interesting in a military setting where you have on the one hand uh, the argument that this is necessary for good discipline, uh, fixing one's collar just so is important. The men all need to look the same. Everyone needs to be orderly, and this is how you keep a regiment in, in good order. Or it can just be, uh, I, I think you said the men use the word style, uh, just, just putting on style, uh, uh, showing being fancy for its own sake. Yeah. And it, again, it sounds like being a gentleman is, is, is not something people agreed on. Uh, this could go either way. Yes, and I think that it's it's in the regiments that are commanded by men of the highest social classes in the North mm-hmm. where this conflict particularly comes out because uh, men from these high social classes that are the, really believe in gentility, they believe that their um, values line up with what's proper in the regular army and with military discipline. I mean, certainly they have army regulations on their side, mm-hmm. but they don't just believe it's it's about discipline. I mean, they, they do believe that's a critical part of it, but they also believe that gentility is an is essential measure of manhood. And so when they command these regiments that have all these men who won't bathe when they have a chance and who refuse to cut their hair, um, it really becomes not just a conflict about discipline, but a, but a conflict about how they view each other as men. Now, on the other side of that equation, there are the men who regard all this um, uh, I'll use a 20th century example. Paul Fussell, uh, in his writing about the Second World War, used the phrase chicken shit to describe mm-hmm. the, the the kind of things officers would make men do just to show they were officers. They could, could make you do that. Uh, pointless detail work, pointless labor uh, that that was had nothing to do with discipline and it was, was just a power game. Uh, this, this is an element, too, of... of gentility for some of these officers, is it not? Yes, and I mean, the, the Civil War phrase that I found that's the equivalent of, of is style, but it's also shoulder, stra- shoulder strap shoulder gentry, mm-hmm. you know, and 
um, that sense that these officers are just trying to show off their power, show off their shoulder straps. And that's why often when some enlisted men will lash out against their officers and by challenging them to a fight, they will say, take off your shoulder straps and let's go outside the lines. Because they, they want that sense of take off that, uh, those marks of power and let's go out man to man and settle this. And this is the era of Jacksonian democracy, the idea of equality of all free men uh, for for northern soldiers who've enlisted to fight to reunify the country. They, they are not necessarily accepting that their neighbor who has shoulder straps and they don't is somehow a better man than they are. Uh, they don't buy that. That's right. And I think if, if listeners want to read the diary of someone who exemplifies that attitude, it's John Haley of the 17th Maine. Mm-hmm. He, and, and he, one of the officers in his regiment is Charles Porter Maddox, who exemplifies the refined gentleman who believes that men who don't display certain characteristics are not manly and who's willing to back up his uh, power in the army with a, a shocking amount of force. Reading Charles Porter Maddox's diary and then John Haley's diary, these two very different men in the 17th Maine, you really get a sense of what was happening between these men. Now, we've talked about gentlemen, and I want to talk about your new book as well. What what we'll do when we come back from the break is talk about the other half of uh, what it means to be a man, the gentlemen and the roughs. There are also those who have no pretension to gentility or being a gentleman. They believe being a man is uh, being violent, being physical, uh, being a, a good drinker, having many other qualities. So we'll find out about the roughs as well as the gentlemen when we come back in just a minute. Our guest tonight, Lorian Foot, author of The Gentleman and the Roughs, Manhood, Honor, and Violence in the Union Army. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. 
Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Lorian Foote, author of The Gentleman and the Roughs, Manhood, Honor, and Violence in the Union Army. Uh, we've talked about gentlemen. There are also those who don't pretend to be gentlemen or, or who take a different view of it. Uh, gentility, uh, religion, temperance have a different view. I cannot resist sharing a story from Edward Cross's uh, memoirs, Colonel of the 5th New Hampshire, describes early in the war uh, one of his neighboring regiments uh, commanded by Colonel Whipple of the 4th New Hampshire. Some observer comes up and criticizes him. says, Colonel Whipple, why do your men use mu- so much profane language? Look at the New Hampshire 4th. It's a moral regiment. They had 14 men baptized this morning. The hell they did, said Whipple. Then turning toward his adjutant, he called out, Adjutant, detail 14 men to be baptized at daylight tomorrow morning. I'll be damned if any New Hampshire men get ahead of me in piety. There's there's the rough side for you. Uh, I, I love that story. Um, That's a great story. The... Uh, He's not interested in actually being pious or actually being uh, genteel. He uses rough language. Uh, to him, being a, a man is competing, is being tough, is is uh, uh, is winning, uh, is fighting, uh, certainly upholding honor. Did you find is is this something that's divided mostly by social class? Is it by region? Is it by uh, wealth? I, no, there, there's, a, there's, a, yeah, there's a social class element to this, but I, I want listeners to understand that I, even though the title of the book is Gentlemen in the Roughs and it sounds so catchy, um, but I wouldn't want people to think that, you know, the gentlemen who believe in moral character and gentility are all men of the higher social class. Men from all social classes, men from all regions of the country, believed in physical prowess and proving your manhood through the ability to take and give pain. (laughs) Uh, Men from all social classes embraced that. Um, It was just that there's a group of men in the Union Army who are of low social economic status, that their violence is particularly marked by men from other classes, and, and those are the ones who are labeled the roughs. But they just have kind of a more obvious expression of the rough mentality that, as the story you told illustrates, men from other social classes who end up being officers also have that attitude towards manhood. So it, it's not, uh, not divided in any one way, and you end up with... Uh, with well, let me let me close our discussion of this book. So I do want to ask you about your current project. You have a quote from uh, Colonel Scammon of the Twenty Third Ohio: "Bad men cannot be good soldiers." Did is this why people wanted to be good? Uh, why they wanted to be men, uh, prove their manhood? Did it relate to being good soldiers, or was it prejudicial? At the beginning of the war, many Northerners believed that. Citizens, what marked a Republican army was that it was composed of citizen soldiers mm-hmm. whose natural qualities of manhood would make them good soldiers and the side with the most courageous manly soldiers would win. So I think that that was a pervasive attitude that the war both challenged and confirmed for people because I think that's part of the issue why why there's such a crackdown in the Union Army on this group that, that is labeled roughs because... And from what I found, they are incredibly violent. I mean, these are men who come into the regiments and they 
they're drunk all the time and they, and they engage in massive fights of epic proportions where they're truly bloodying each other in boxing matches and it's very disruptive to the the orderly discipline of the, of the regiment and so I think those men didn't make good soldiers so the the, the book is the gentleman and the roughs listeners you will enjoy this book. It's worth picking up and reading. Very uh, interesting look into the sociology of the Union Army, a topic I'm fascinated by, certainly. But, uh, Lorian, working on something new that's going to come out relatively soon? It comes out November 6th. So so the listeners will not have to hold their breath too long <laughs> to see it. Um, uh, I have not seen it. Tell us about it. Well, it's called The Yankee Plague, Escaped Union Prisoners and the Collapse of the Confederacy. And the book is about the mass escape of 3,000 Union prisoners of war from Confederate camps in South Carolina and North Carolina between September 1864 and February 1865. And these soldiers escape. They travel in parties from, uh, from two to six people, and they're moving through the Carolina countryside trying to get back to Union lines. They are helped by slaves, by white Southerners. They have other Southerners who are trying to track them down. And the story of why so many of these prisoners escaped at the same time um, tells us a lot about what was happening inside the Confederacy as it collapsed. So the book uh, ha talks a lot about the collapse of slavery and the collapse of security. And it's a very narrative-driven book as I tell the story of these prisoners and their quest to get out of the Confederacy and the people who helped them. A few months ago, or maybe it was a few years ago, time flies on Civil War Talk Radio, uh, Peter Carlson was a guest. Uh, he's a, a journalist who wrote a book called Junius and Albert's Adventures in the Confederacy, a Civil War Odyssey, about two journalists that get captured at Vicksburg, but they, they, they really have an odyssey through the Confederacy and its prison system, and they end up in, in Salisbury, North Carolina, and they escape, and they're part of this exodus that you're talking about, and it's a fascinating, their journey is certainly fascinating, and you're suggesting that they were not unique, that they, they go from safe house to safe house, protected by slaves, by the red strings, the the, the sympathize, union sympathizers in the South. And you're saying this happened on a large scale. Yes, it did. And their escape is a little different from the rest. That That's a great book, and I I use a little bit of, of the, that story in my book. Mm -hmm. But they escaped from Salisbury kind of as an isolated case. The genesis of the escapes that I'm talking about is when the Confederate government decides to move the prisoners that are held at Andersonville and Macon, Georgia after Sherman captures Atlanta because they don't want Sherman to liberate these captives. Mm -hmm. But the Confederate bureaucracy is crumbling and there's no effective command structure over the prison system. So when they decide to move these thousands of prisoners of war, they don't notify Confederate military commanders that prisoners of war are coming to locations that are being besieged by Union invasions. And so basically what happens is Confederate military commanders get a message from one of their adjutants, um, there are 10,000 prisoners of war on a train pulling into this city right now. <laughs> and wow. so in South Carolina, uh, General Samuel Jones, he just, without notifying prison officials, he sends the enlisted men that he receives to Florence, South Carolina, 
He sends the officers to Columbia, and these prisoners of war are turned out into open fields with no structures, no fences, and inadequate guards. And that's what causes these mass escapes. So they, they, they just walk away by dozens or hundreds? Yes. Wow. This, this is intriguing. The, uh, yes. <laughs> go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, so in Florence, um, when, they, when these enlisted men first get there, they've spent a summer in Andersonville. So they're not interested in waiting for the Confederacy to build a new prison for them. So they do a mass mutiny and, and break out and by the hundreds. And Sam Jones has to send several units from Charleston to just basically patrol the Carolina countryside around Florence, even up into North Carolina, to try to track down and recover the prisoners of war. And then in Columbia, the officers... Um, and this goes back to the honor discussion. Mm -hmm. So the the guards of these officers, these prisoner of war officers that are union officers, on the trains from Charleston to Columbia, they'd had these officers sign paroles of honor that they mm -hmm. wouldn't escape if they were allowed, to, when they get to this open field, to go out and get wood to mm -hmm. build fires and shelter. And the officers who sign the parole of honor actually don't escape when they get right. there, even though they had the opportunity, because they're gentlemen and they believe in their word of honor. Mm -hmm. um, but those who don't sign the parole, they, they just walk out. Wow. I mean, it is really uh, a fascinating story. Now, the guys escape, the people transferred from Andersonville, they can't be in much shape to uh, to escape or to do All anything. Right. So, so there would have been even higher numbers if so many of the men weren't sick and in, and in poor condition. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the, uh, it, it's an analogy that's neither accurate nor in good taste, but I'm thinking of the movie Stripes with Bill Murray, where uh, the, the the guys in basic training, their 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 drill sergeant dies, so they finish training on their own. They train themselves, and that's a comedy. There's nothing funny about Civil War prisoners of war, obviously, but the idea of these people almost being without authority or with such limited authority that they can walk away at will. Uh, it's fascinating. Do most of them make it back to the north? Yes, about 65%. And that's part of what I talk about in the book, because what happens is they move into uh, the South Carolina countryside, where, where I argue that the South Carolina government is no longer effectively functioning by this point in the war. Mm -hmm. There's no internal security. Um, so ordinary people have to I mean, ordinary people suddenly experience all of these Yankees at night moving across their farms, digging up their sweet potatoes, sleeping in their barns. And um, they organize in neighborhoods to try to capture these Yankees. And what's really interesting about it is in November, the South Carolina government tries to call up the militia in order to prepare to defend South Carolina against Sherman, who at that point, of course, is moving and then is marched through Georgia. Mm -hmm. And I found the connection that only 20% of the men in South Carolina who were available responded to that militia call. And it's because they were running around their neighborhoods trying to track down escaped Yankee prisoners who were, you know, working with their slaves and, and disrupting their farms. And so, you know, by this point, South Carolina can't defend itself from internal threats or external threats. Was there much or any collaboration? Did uh, I would assume where you had uh, the, the tiny free black community or you had escaped slaves, they would help the Union soldiers escape. 
And yes, and one of the things I found that was very interesting was the increasing collaboration by slaves. So at first, that their aid to escape Union prisoners is just on an individual basis. A Yankee shows up at a slave cabin and they give him food and directions. But over time, the slaves begin to organize. They form stations to guide the Union prisoners. They actually form uh, semi-military companies where, so for example, um, this one community in South Carolina actually sets up a picket on, on the road because so many escaped Yankees are moving along that road. They want to intercept the Yankees. And the, the slaves in the area form a counter picket hmm. uh, with weapons where they intercept the Yankees and then guide them around the picket that their masters had set. Wow. So I see kind of this increasing military organization on the part of the slaves as they're responding to these escaped prisoners. Well, this is a, a fascinating uh, topic. How did you get onto this topic? Well, it's just like I got onto the gentleman in the roughs. I was doing as I was doing the research for the gentleman in the roughs. I was reading the letters and diary of an officer. Charles Porter Maddox in the 17th Maine, who's one of these elite gentlemen who beats up a lot of roughs. And I'm reading his diary, and he gets captured in battle, and he ends up at the officer's prison in Macon, Georgia, and then he goes to Columbia, and he escapes. And he's talking about, we're escaping, and there's all these men in the woods around us. And then in his diary, he's recording that he spent the night in the slave cabin, and they were talking about politics with the slaves. And it was so fascinating. I thought, I have never heard of this or anything about this. And so I just started to, to track down more of the story. And as I did, and I went to the National Archives and found some records that other historians really haven't fully utilized, I realized that nobody knew about the numbers involved in these escapes. And that's when the book started evolving. Wow. Well, I mean, it, when you think about it, it makes sense. What, what happens to these prisoners of war at the end of the war? Some are liberated, but, but the Confederacy is in no shape to, to maintain their prison camp system by 1865. So logically, something has to happen, and, and this is where they go. It, it is a, a fascinating story. So uh, you are teaching now at Texas A&M, is that correct? That's correct. That, that is uh, East Carolina's rival for maritime and nautical archaeology. I think we have the only two programs of note in the country in that field. That's uh, right. Ours is housed in the history department, so I'm, I'm, I work closely with my colleagues uh, who teach there, and it's... Uh, we're always uh, competing with you guys for graduate students and, and uh, trying to do our best. Well, it has been a pleasure talking with you. I'm really interested in the, the new book, Yankee Plague. Uh, what was the subtitle again? Escaped Union Prisoners and the Collapse of the Confederacy. Okay, so listeners, look for that in November of 2016 when that comes out. In the meantime, The Gentleman in the Roughs, Manhood, Honor, and Violence in the Union Army has been out for a few years by Lorian Foote, our guest tonight. Lorian, it's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been just wonderful. Thank you so much for having me on the show. And listeners, as always, thanks for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.